the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. drink your cup of coffee, you eat your piece of toast, you come home, you fight traffic, you pay bills, you mow the lawn, you get the car inspected, you do all the mundane, average, everyday, ordinary things. That's when your faith must remain strong. Gideon seemed to have a hard time in the latter years of his life, just in the everyday, mundane things, being faithful to God. Listen, finish well. Finish well. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Judges. Can you think of a time in your life when you were closer in your relationship to God than you are today? Most of us have times when we waver in our walk, but in the end, it doesn't matter how we started. All that matters, as we'll hear in today's message, is that we finish strong. Pastor Gary shares how Gideon's life is a sad example of one that starts off well, but as soon as things get comfortable, it falls apart. The real battle is fought in our daily mundane tasks. Don't let your guard down, thinking you can just lean back on the glory days. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part two of today's message titled, Finish Well. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. If you have a King James Bible, it says it a little more graphically. All Israel went a-whoring after it. Because it's this indication of this spiritual depravity. The people have sunk into idolatry. They're not worshiping the Lord. What are they worshiping? A golden vest. This is laughable. All of Israel falling down, worshiping a golden vest. But before you laugh, consider we do some laughable things too with our idols. We have idols for sure we do. You know what I'm talking about. You double park your idol so that your doors don't get dinged. You chase around your boyfriend idol or your girlfriend idol, a.k.a. stalking. (laughs) We have idols that we make out of money, possessions, popularity, pleasure. For goodness sakes, in America, we even have a show called Idol. You know what I'm saying? There's idolatry. I think it was Calvin who said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Anything that we begin to worship and esteem more than God is, in effect, an idol. 
We have to be very careful about idols in our own lives. So before we laugh too much at these people, as silly as it seems, they're worshiping a golden vest of all things. There's a few things that we've propped up above God, if we're honest, that we need to tear down in our own lives. And also verse 27 says that it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Circle the word snare. It is the Hebrew word mokesh, M-O-Q-E-S-H, mokesh. And mokesh in the Bible is the word that is used for a snare or a trap or a noose for catching animals. And how telling this is, because in reality, idols, they trap us. They trap us. We become captive to our idols. And so did Gideon and his family. And the sad thing is that in spite of the fact that all Israel is worshiping this and it's becoming a snare to Gideon and his family, he does nothing about it. He perpetuates idolatry by the fact that he makes the idol to begin with and then he does nothing to dismantle it when the people start worshiping it. Now, it's not as if he lacks the courage to do it because actually, and we didn't talk about this, but back in chapter 6, you don't need to turn, but back in chapter 6, it tells us that Gideon actually came from a family of idolaters, that his father had an altar to Baal and had also put up a pole in honor of Asherah, that's the male and female god and goddess of fertility that the Canaanites worshipped. The Bible says in Judges 6 that Gideon's father was an idol worshiper. And one of the first things that the Lord said to Gideon when God called Gideon up as a judge of Israel, one of the first things God said to Gideon is, I want you to smash your father's altars. I want you to tear down his Asherah pole, and I want you to break up his altar to Baal. And the Bible says that Gideon did it in the cover of night because it says he was afraid of his family, but nevertheless he did it. So Gideon knows about idols and he knows how to smash them, and he knows how to worship the true and living God, and here he does nothing about it. He actually makes the idol, the people worship it, and he doesn't do anything about it. And idolatry here becomes something that mars the life and legacy of Gideon. The second thing that we see in this story is not only idolatry, but adultery. In verse 29... It says Jerob Baal. Now, again, that's another name for Gideon. And he got that name because when he smashed his father's altars to Baal, the people of Israel wanted to kill young Gideon. And his father actually defended him and said, well, listen, he smashed the altar to Baal, but Baal's big enough to kill Gideon if Baal wants to. And so they named him Jerob Baal, meaning let Baal contend with him. And so he still has this name attached to him, but this is Gideon, Jerobbaal. Of course, Baal never did anything because Baal isn't a real god. Jerobbaal, verse 29, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had, notice, many wives. Well, of course he did. Of course he had many wives. Why? Because he had 70 sons. One woman is not going to push all those boys out. Not one. You're going to have to have many to have 70 sons. And the Bible doesn't say how many, but do a little math. You have 70 sons, not even counting the daughters. You have 70 sons. If one wife has five sons, he has at least 14 wives. Maybe it was one son per wife. Maybe he has 70 wives. We don't know. Just says he has a lot here. And please note, polygamy was never acceptable to God. 
Polygamy was never acceptable to God. Now, sometimes, you know, Bible critics and people who are skeptics about Christianity, they'll point to polygamy in the Old Testament, and they'll talk about, they'll discredit, they'll find anything to discredit the Bible, and they'll say, you know, here, this is so weird because God seems to accept polygamy in the Bible, and, you know, and so what's up with a God like that? God never accepted it, never condoned it. Please note, just because... God didn't always address every single sin issue. Don't interpret his silence to mean that he condoned it. He didn't condone it. If he punished or killed people for every sinful behavior, the human race would have been wiped out by now. He would have killed everybody by now. The fact is that God had an original design and a prescribed definition for marriage, and it was to be a man and a woman And it wasn't to be a plurality of people. It was to be one man and one woman. In Genesis 2.24, that's where God first spells it out when he creates Adam and Eve. He says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and the two shall be united and shall become one flesh. Jesus reiterates and reinforces this in the New Testament when he quotes from Genesis' account in Matthew 19. I'll read it. Matthew 19.4-6. Haven't you read, Jesus said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, singular, just like Genesis 2.24 said. Not plural, not sister wives, okay? Wife, singular, and the two will become one flesh, not the many, not the several, two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one, therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate, and Jesus restates the Genesis account, God's original design for marriage, one man, one woman, not a multitude of people, polygamy was something that God never condoned, his original design was one man and one woman, so why didn't God punish a man for having several wives? Because it was punishment enough. (laughs) Now listen, don't let the sisters get all riled up. I don't mean it against just the sisters. I mean it against the whole scene, the whole family. Listen, come on back. Tell me one situation in the Bible where a man with several wives worked out wonderfully. Give me one story in the Bible where that worked out really well. You won't find it. Never worked out well. Because they went against God's prescribed design. You look at Abraham. Abraham has Sarah and Hagar. How'd that work out? Sarah and Hagar. Because whenever you have a multitude of wives like this, you always have the three C's. You have chaos, conflict, and cat fights. Okay? Every time in the Bible. You got one of those or a multitude of them. A mixture. And Sarah and Hagar didn't get along. It's what we call today the Middle East conflict. Okay? As a result. You look at the life of Jacob. Jacob marries Two sisters, Rachel and Leah, has a couple of concubines too. And Rachel and Leah, there's this jealousy, there's this infighting, there's this contention in the home. Because the Bible says in the Genesis account that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, a lot of commentaries are debating what the weak eyes means about Leah. It can either mean that she had blue eyes, which would have been an anomaly in the day for Middle Eastern people. Or it could mean she had weak eyes in the sense she had poor vision. But in the verse, it's a contrasting statement. It says Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was beautiful and lovely in form. And most believe that the weak eyes means really that she was hard to look at. I'm not making it up. She was kind of hard in the eyes. In fact, Leah, no offense to those of you who may be named Leah, in Hebrew, Leah means wild cow. (laughs) 
And in the story, Rachel is all mad because Leah, her sister, is having a bunch of baby boys and Rachel is barren. She goes to Jacob and she's like, what's up with a cowgirl over here? She can have a bunch of kids and I can't even have any kids. Give me some kids or I'll die. And Jacob looks at her and says, woman, am I responsible for you having children? It works okay with me and Leah. It's not me. And there's this, all this infighting and bickering. It's terrible. Solomon. Solomon, 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's a lot of shoes. <laughs> that man had zero closet space. <laughs> and how'd it work out for him? It's terrible. First Kings 11, verse 4. His wives turned Solomon's heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. So listen, it never was God's intention. His original design, one man, one woman... And when that was violated, there's all kinds of conflict and chaos, which, by the way, is the way it always is. When we violate God's prescribed way of doing things related to any subject, we invite chaos and conflict in our own lives as well. That's just the way it works. And by the way, because of the way that now our country is trending more and more state by state towards same-sex marriage and the redefinition of marriage, it's going to open the door to polygamy too. It already has. Maybe some of you saw an article in the Washington Post because this family, the Brown family from the TLC network show Sister Wives, sued the state of Utah because of Utah's criminalization laws against polygamy. And they won. Yeah, a federal judge who was appointed actually by George W. Bush, Judge Clark Wadup, this article appeared in the Washington Post. The headline of the story was the Sister Wives Lawsuit and the End of Morality Laws. And this federal judge struck down the criminalization of polygamy in the state of Utah. Because here's what happens. When you start to say that marriage is two people, a male and a female, and then that gets redefined as two people of any gender, now then the question becomes, well, why just two? Why just two? It's an open door now to redefining marriage at a whole other level in relation now to polygamy. And this federal judge just decided that the criminalization of polygamy was unconstitutional. And he wrote in his opinion that the criminalization of cohabitation clearly violated the due process clause and the free exercise clause of the United States Constitution. And thereby opening the door for polygamy. And in this story here, written by Jonathan Turley of the Washington Post, who was the lead counsel in defending the Brown family, who, by the way, are a part of the Apostolic United Brethren Church, in Jonathan Turley's article here in the Washington Post, he wrote some things that just sound shocking to me. He said this, The Utah ruling is one of the latest examples of a national trend away from laws that impose a moral code. And he thinks that's a good thing. He says in his article, our morality laws are falling and we are a better nation for it. Are you kidding me? Laws are intended to guide and govern morality because left to ourselves, we're a mess. But when you start to allow individuals to become their own standard for morality, why now it's each to his own and we define it ourselves, I suppose. And at the end of this article, he wrote this. He said, It is not a single moral voice that is heard today, but a chorus of voices. And he hails that as a good thing. That's a terrible thing. 
when we abandon a singular set of standards, which the foundation of our nation was originally built upon the Word of God by Judeo-Christian values, when we begin to abandon that and we leave every person up to himself or herself to define what is moral, we are on dangerous ground. What is the world coming to? So we look at the story of Gideon, we think, well, this is far removed, you know, polygamy and all this kind of stuff going on. Not so much. I think polygamy will be legalized in my lifetime. You say, well, I can't imagine that would possibly happen. How many things have you seen happen that you thought would never happen? Well, back to our story here. In addition to having several wives, verse 31 says this, his concubine... He has a concubine in addition. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Now, question. If you have many wives, why do you really need a concubine? He has a concubine. He has a mistress here. And please note, he names the son born to this mistress Abimelech. This also is an indication of where Gideon has fallen into this spiritual state of decline because Abimelech in Hebrew was from two Hebrew words, Abba Melech. Abimelech translates, my father is king. Think about this. Dad names one of his sons, my dad is king. The son of his mistress named Abimelech. Now, look, Gideon, back in verse 22, had said to the people, I don't want to be your king. The Lord is going to rule over you. But unfortunately, words can be cheap because while he says that, to his credit, good answer, he's not living like that. He's living like a king. He acquires wealth from the people. He made a trophy in his honor that becomes an idol in the nation. He acquires what amounts to be a harem of women. He has 70 sons, and one of them he names, my father is king. And Abimelech will be the tragic legacy to Gideon's life. Gideon will die at the end of chapter 8, and all of chapter 9 is devoted to the story of Abimelech. And it's a very sad story, because he is a ruthless, wicked man. He is a ruthless, wicked man. And I'm just going to summarize chapter 9 by giving you four points about Abimelech. First of all, he put himself forward as the ruler of Israel. He was a self-appointed ruler. He was not God-selected. He was self-appointed. He is not considered one of the judges of Israel, neither major nor minor. He was a self-appointed ruler of Israel after dad dies. But in order to try to secure his reign, you know what he does? He murders all but one of Gideon's 70 sons. He murders all of them except one. In chapter 9, it says there was a particular stone, and he had all of Gideon's 70 sons brought to this one stone where he had them each murdered. Only the youngest son of Gideon, Jotham was his name, escaped, ran off, and we never hear about him again. That's the kind of ruthless man that Abimelech was. Chapter 9 also tells us that he controlled Israel for three years until the Lord sent an evil spirit against him. The Lord allowed an evil spirit to come against Abimelech, and it incited the people of Israel against Abimelech. There was civil war. There was strife and conflict. And Abimelech then tried to secure his reign because he felt it slipping through the civil war that ensued. 
And it tells us that he suffered a tragic death while attempting to keep his reign. Chapter 9 tells us that a woman from high up on a tower threw down a stone that hit Abimelech in the head, wounding him. And as he was dying, he said to his armor bearer, drive your sword through me because I don't want it to be said that a woman killed me. And that's the way that his life ends. And that's chapter 9. And that's the legacy that Gideon leaves. Why? Because of idolatry and adultery. Now, if a book were to be written about Gideon, I think the chapters might be entitled this way. Chapter 1, a timid young man. Chapter 2, called by God. Chapter 3, a valiant warrior. Chapter 4, a military hero. Chapter 5, a judge of Israel. Chapter 6, refuses to be made king. Chapter 7, makes a golden ephod. Chapter 8, responsible for Israel's idolatry. Chapter 9, many wives and a mistress. Chapter 10, 70 sons and a rebel son named Abimelech. Chapter 11, Abimelech murders his brothers. Chapter 12, civil war, the death of Abimelech, and the end of a legacy. First half of the book is a good read. Not so much the second half. What will the last chapters of your life read like? See, it doesn't matter as much how well you started. What matters is how well you finished. For Gideon, it seems that it was easier for him to be faithful to God in the face of a national emergency. When there was a crisis in Israel and God called him and he was this valiant warrior and this hero for the people of Israel and he defeats the army of the Midianites... And he responded well and was very faithful to God in the face of a national emergency. But you know what Gideon's problem was? When he left the military career and he entered civilian life, he didn't manage everyday life very well. Oh, he had great courage for the battles. But when the accolades and all the honor slowly faded into the distant background. Gideon couldn't seem to manage the everyday, somewhat mundane, ordinary days. And that takes just as much courage. It takes a different courage, but it takes just as much courage. It takes a consistent courage to get up every day and live your life somewhat routine, perhaps even mundane. You wipe the kids' noses. You change their diapers. You feed them, you get them off to school if they're old enough. You kiss the husband goodbye, you kiss the wife goodbye as you each go off to work or as she stays at home or he stays at home or as a single person, you go out into the workforce. You drink your cup of coffee, you eat your piece of toast, you come home, you fight traffic, you pay bills, you mow the lawn, you get the car inspected, you do all the mundane, average, everyday, ordinary things. That's when your faith must remain strong. Gideon seemed to have a hard time in the latter years of his life, just in the everyday mundane things, being faithful to God. Listen, finish well. Finish well. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. There is therefore a crown in store for me, and not for me only, but for all those who long for his appearing. He said in the book of Acts, I consider my life worth nothing, except that I might finish the race. Pray for me. 
Pray for your pastors as we pray for you and pray for each other that together we might finish strong. May the last chapters of your life and my life read well. That in the ordinary, everyday ways of life, we finished strong. We finished well. Pastor Gary has been teaching through the book of Judges, sharing the incredible lengths God goes to in order to rescue his people and teach them about himself. Sometimes God needs to use extreme circumstances to get our attention and turn us back to the path he knows is best for us. We pray you've been encouraged as you listen today and that God is working in your heart even now. If you'd like to talk with someone about what following God means for you, or if you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. This message today has been brought to you from Pastor Gary and Cornerstone Connection, a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. You are most welcome to come see us in person if you're in the area. We meet every Sunday and Wednesday as a group and we'd love to have you be part of our services. Head to cornerstoneconnection.cc to find out more about the church and find directions and service times. While you're at our website, be sure to check out our archive of previous messages and download our mobile app to take them with you on the go. Thanks for tuning in today, and be sure to join us again for another edition of Cornerstone Connection. Got no place to go, but still you know, still you know you're not alone. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.